Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6. And we will begin in verse 22 this morning. Luke chapter 6, verse 22. You'll find that on page 862 in the Pew Bible in front of you. It's been good to be here this morning. I believe God is here. I trust you do as well. What a great delight it is to come and to worship Him in our act of service to Him. And now we want Him to serve us, don't we? Uh, We need Him now to come and teach us His Word that we may faithfully follow Him in the lives He's given us. I trust His Word will help us as we look in Luke chapter 6 and verse 22. Hear now the Word of God. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And in verse 26, the Lord says, Woe to you, and all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Our Father, we're thankful now for this time to come and to hear from you, to hear from our Lord Jesus as he taught this wonderful sermon. Father, I I believe in my heart, and I I think my brothers and sisters do as well, we, we believe that we need special guidance from you in these days. We want very much to follow Jesus well. We want very much to live faithfully in his kingdom. We want to show a watching world who Jesus is. And our, our culture, our world, Father, is presenting unique challenges for us. And so we come now and we, we want to sit under your word. And we ask you through your spirit, the proclaimed preaching of the word of God, that you would mold us into Christ's likeness. That is our great ambition today. It's not to be entertained. Father, it's not even to, to be moved to tears. It is to leave this place reflecting Jesus more faithfully in all that we say and do. Help us, our dear Father, through your Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are here in the sermon, what is called the Sermon on the Plain. And you'll remember that before Jesus began to preach this sermon, he prayed up on the mountain for uh, throughout the night, and he came down the mountain, and he called all the disciples to himself, and he chose of those disciples 12 whom he named apostles. And we looked at those apostles a couple weeks ago, and we saw that these were flawed individuals. They were sinful men, that God chose flawed, sinful people. And yet once they become impacted by Jesus, and especially his resurrection... The transformation that takes place in their life is nothing less than extraordinary. They go from selfish, judgmental cowards to these courageous, loving witnesses. They, they become men who are so in love with their king that they are willing to die for him. In fact, most of them did. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was published in 1556, I think, at last check, it's the third most... Um, purchased book ever published behind the Bible and John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. 
Fox's Book of Martyrs details the martyrdom that Christians have uh, uh, incurred throughout the centuries, according to church tradition. And it speaks to us of the apostles. The book says that Peter, the apostle Peter, was condemned to death during Nero's persecution. It is known that many Christians encouraged him to leave the city. And as he came into the city gates, Peter saw Jesus coming to meet him. Lord, where are you going? Peter asked. I am coming again to be crucified, was the answer. Seeing that his suffering was understood, Peter's suffering, Peter turned around, returned to the city where Jerome, the historian, tells us he was crucified upside down at his own request, saying he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way as his Lord was. Andrew, Peter's brother, when Andrew, through his preaching, had brought many to faith of Christ, Hagaius, the governor, was, forced, was to force all Christians to sacrifice to the Roman idols. Andrew went to him and told him, Worship the true God, and he should banish all the false gods and blind idols from his mind. Furious, Agaius ordered Andrew not to preach these things anymore, or he would face a speedy crucifixion. Whereupon Andrew replied, I would not have preached the honor and the glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. And so Andrew, like his brother Peter, was crucified. Andrew's cross had two ends in the ground, forming an axe we often call St. Andrew's cross. James, according to Acts 12, was beheaded by Herod Agrippa. But church tradition tells us there was a man who betrayed him that led to his execution. And this man who betrayed James was actually leading James up to, the, to, to his martyrdom. And he witnessed the courage of James. And he repented right at that very moment. He desired of James to forgive him what he had done. After James had a little pause with himself upon the matter, turning to him, he said, Peace to thee, my brother, and kissed him. And both were beheaded. John, the brother of James, was not killed, though he was boiled alive in a cauldron of boiling oil and exiled to the desert island of Patmos. Philip, after years of preaching to the barbarous nations, was stoned, crucified, and buried with his daughter. Bartholomew preached in India and translated the Gospel of Matthew into their tongue. He was beaten, crucified, and beheaded. Matthew, who wrote his Gospel to the Jews in the Hebrew tongue after he had converted Ethiopia and all of Egypt. Hyrcanius, the king, sent someone to kill him with a spear. Thomas preached to the Parthians, Medes, Persians, Carmenians, Bactrians, and Margians until a pagan priest killed him with a spear as well. James, the son of Alphaeus, who was 94 years old, was beaten and stoned by Jews, his head then split open with a club. Simon preached the gospel in Britain, where he was crucified. Judas, uh, the zealot, was crucified in Edessa. And for good measure, by the way, the author of the book we're studying, Luke, who was, of course, not an apostle, was hanged on a tree by a pagan priest. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. And when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And starting Jesus' sermon, he begins with these beatitudes, these blessings. He tells us what the blessed life is like. He tells us what, what the man is like who is approved by God. It has a deep and abiding happiness that is not dependent upon the circumstances of life. Which is quite contrary to the world's understanding of blessedness. 
The world understands you're blessed if the circumstances in your life are going well, and you are not blessed, certainly woe to you, if the circumstances of your life are not going well. And Jesus shows up and he says, wait a second, I have totally different values in my kingdom. That's not how I understand life. And many have called Jesus' kingdom, therefore, the upside-down kingdom. Because he shows up and he says, you know what the waste of life is like? It's a life that seeks wealth. It's a life that seeks things and food and pleasure and acclaim. And it's not that Jesus is against pleasure. Please don't understand that. It's not that Jesus doesn't want us to have joy. He's against the, the fleeting pleasures that these idols present to us that block our view of God. He, he's, he's against pleasures that cause us to care less about God. Against pleasures that cause us to love others less. He's against the pleasures that lead us to guard our life rather than give it away as he has given. I remember years ago I was uh, at, at a church service and there was a missions report. And the, the report of the missions was, was very powerful and very motivating and encouraging. And I remember walking out of the building and, and visiting with someone who was also there. And, and I said to them, uh, wow, that was, that was pretty motivating. Are you ready to go next year? And this individual replied to me, and I understand the heart. I, I, I could relate to, to this individual. But the individual said to me, did you see the hotel room? Did, did you see this, the, the, the conditions in which they have to live for that week? And, and there, there's something in our heart that's afraid to give our life away for the kingdom because we might be uncomfortable. But what Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes is, blessed are you when you are uncomfortable. That's where the blessing is found. That's where pleasure is found. Blessed are you when following me makes you uncomfortable and poor and hungry and sad. That is where I meet you. That is where I use you. You see, we're afraid to follow Jesus because we have wrong, a wrong understanding of where blessings lie. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you're awkward, when you invite the friendless into your home or you decide to share the gospel over the back fence. Blessed are you when you're tired. And you still go ahead and host community group. Blessed are you when your life is inconvenienced because you decide to teach Sunday school or to disciple someone. I pity you, he says, when you think blessings found in food and money and entertainment and easy schedules and comfortable beds. It has been said that in our 20s we seek fun. In our 30s we become popular. In our 40s, we accumulate wealth. In our 50s, we eat the best food and have the best things. In our 60s, we are entertained. And in our 70s, we are the life of the party with all the stories we can tell. And Jesus shows up and says, woe to you. That is a wasted life. I pity you. And so we would do well to flee from these idols. Flee from these fears that keep us from serving God in the way that he calls us to do so. There's one more idol that Jesus would like to destroy. It's a very American idol. It's the idol of security. Or perhaps we could understand it, the idol of popularity. As he tells us, blessed are you when people hate you. Now clearly he's trying to prepare his apostles, isn't he? As we just surveyed, the apostles' life didn't end up, end up well in, in the American sense. And so he's trying to prepare them and encourage them. When these things happen to you, you're not being cursed by God. God's not turning his back upon you. Rather, you're being blessed. And yet, there is great truth for us here today. And as I mentioned last week in the beginning of my sermon, there's a reason that I wanted to kind of pause on this passage. It seems to me that there's a storm on the horizon. And it is growing increasingly threatening for those who follow Jesus. 
It seems to me that there is a rising new moral order in America. An order, a moral order, an ethic that goes directly contrary to the teaching of Scripture. And it seems to me that right behind this new moral order follows a new legal order. A new uh, legal way of doing things in this land. And of course I have in mind uh, the sexual revolution that is taking place before our eyes. As it pertains to homosexuality and same-sex marriage and transgender issues. I would like to discuss that with you today. As we look at this text. So my, my goal, by the way, today is not simply just to, to, to talk about those current topics. My goal is to actually look at this passage and just work our way through it, as is our custom. Learn from God's Word and then take some time during this message and apply it to what's going on in our life around us. So we're going to look at, at these three verses, beginning with uh, the first question, who is persecuted? And then we'll ask, what is persecution? And then lastly, how to respond to persecution. So number one, who is persecuted? You notice Jesus says here in verse 22, blessed are you. So who, who's the you? Well, look up in verse 20. Who's he preaching to? And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. So he's preaching to his disciples. He's preaching to those who follow Jesus. That includes, of course, you and I. And he says to them, blessed are you. You disciples will be persecuted. In fact, there are 27 books in the New Testament. 25 of them discuss the persecution that Christians face. This is just a normal part of following Jesus. In fact, Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Barnabas would tell the church in Antioch in Acts 14, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus would say to his disciples on another occasion in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So therefore, Christian, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. If you want to live a life that reflects the kingdom of God, you will go through many hardships. If you want to live like Jesus, you will be treated like Jesus. This will happen. Now, of course, many Christians suffer not for their Christianity, right? For, but for their lack of it, right? So he's not talking about suffering because you're obnoxious or self-righteous or arrogant, right? This is particularly suffering that comes when you model Christ-likeness. You notice at the end of verse 22, he says, on account of the Son of Man, right? And so when you act like Jesus, or in Matthew's version, on the account of righteousness, when you're like Jesus, people will not like you because they don't like Jesus, they don't. The world doesn't. That's what the Bible tells us, and that's what experience bears out. In fact, often when people ask me what I do, I'm somewhat reluctant to tell them I'm a pastor. And, and often I don't. Um, I, I tell them I'm a teacher. Uh, I tell them I'm a, a counselor. And one of my favorite things to do, I tell them I'm a motivational speaker. <laughs> and uh, they, they find that fascinating. Right? I get in all sorts of, what do you mean you're a motivational Yeah, I talk to a couple hundred people almost every week. And, I, I, I tell them how to live a, a right life and to think rightly. Oh, tell me more. What do you mean? Well, it all has to do with following Jesus. And then before I know it, I'm, I'm able to share the gospel with them. They usually find out I'm a preacher by, by the end. But when you tell people you're a preacher, it just shuts off the conversation. They don't know what to do with you. It, they're all, it's awkward. And, and the Bible tells us this happens. You know, Paul said that the, the gospel to some is the aroma of life. But to those who are perishing... It's the stench of death. Because his Christ-likeness exposes wickedness, doesn't it? In fact, keep your, keep your finger here. We're going to turn back. But look over in Luke 16. Let me show you what this is, looks like in the life of Jesus. In Luke 16, Jesus is teaching. Jesus is exposing wickedness. He is explaining what righteousness is. In verse 13 of Luke 16. 
Jesus says, teaches uh, a lesson very, you're very familiar with. No servant can have two masters, he says. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. So what does he mean, two masters? What is he talking about in particular? End of verse 13, you cannot serve God and money. So that's what he's talking about. You, you have to choose. You can't serve both. So this is just a teaching of righteousness, right? Well, look in verse 14. Look at the response. The Pharisees, who were what? Lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And so the Pharisees loved money... And therefore, they begin to slander Jesus. Because Jesus' attitude about money, which is righteous, confronts and attacks their attitude about money, which is greed. And so what do they do? They begin to ridicule Jesus. They begin to slander Jesus. But Jesus goes on to tell us why in verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. Right? Jesus, Jesus is just teaching him. He says, you know, your love for money is treason against God. And that confronts them. And so they have a decision, right? They can either repent or they can continue in their sin. But in order to continue in their sin, they need to justify it, that it is a right way to live. And so they justify it by, by slandering the one who taught them contrary. This is how they justify themselves. And so if you put God first in your life, in your work, in your home, in your school, in your neighborhood... If you follow God, people will justify their lack of pursuit of God by persecuting you. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is like our badge. I don't know, maybe you're here today and you're thinking about becoming a Christian. Please understand that when you begin to follow Jesus, you invite the hatred of the world upon you. You invite the enmity of those who do not follow Jesus upon you. And sometimes that's manifested in some ways and sometimes in others. But to follow Jesus is a radical decision. And it changes everything about your life. And Jesus is explaining this, that persecution comes. Just read the, read the book of Acts. What do we see the church happen? It's being persecuted. Read the epistles. Right? The epistles are almost always occasion either based upon heresy or persecution. That's why the apostle would be writing to that church. Or to read church history. One of my favorite uh, men in ancient church history is a man named Polycarp. Who was killed in 160 A.D. He was uh, 86 years old. I believe, if I remember correctly, he was a disciple of John the Apostle. And, and he was taken before the proconsul at age 86. And the proconsul said, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Right? Just say something bad about Jesus, you go home. Live the rest of your life. Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals, the proconsul said. Then call them, Polycarp replied. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you wish. He did. He was burned to death. But a great miraculous event took place. It's a wonderful story to read. Or you don't have to go that far back. Consider uh, my great hero, Charles Spurgeon, who stood for the truth in his time. And the church was abandoning the truth uh, to a great degree. And Spurgeon stood on God's word. And he was ridiculed. And he was persecuted. And it was intense. And the criticism was hateful. And his, you know what his wife did? She took a large sheet of paper and she wrote in large script the Beatitudes. And she tacked it to the ceiling above his bed. Because she wanted her husband to lie down. 
and to be reminded when he puts his head on the pillow and when he wakes, the first thing he sees, to be reminded that to receive Jesus means to receive suffering. To follow Christ means to be persecuted, just as Jesus has promised here in this beatitude. And so Christians will be persecuted. Of course, we need to live Christ-like lives in order to be persecuted, right? It's only when we follow Jesus. To the degree we are like Jesus that the persecution will come upon us. It has been said that even a dead dog can swim with the tide. Right? We need to swim against the tide. We need to go against the culture. If you go with the flow, with the culture, as it pertains to money and family and school and business, they will feel real comfortable around you. They will just consider you one of us who happens to also like Jesus. And you're just like us. And there's just this great pressure to go along. We like to be popular. We like money. We like things. We like food. We like to be well spoken of. And yet Jesus says here in verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so the disciples of Christ will be persecuted. Of course, that raises the question, what is persecution? Usually when we say persecution, we think of murder, or beatings, or being arrested or robbed. And certainly that includes that. Jesus said in Matthew 24, they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death. But look at what he has in mind here in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. Right? When they despise you in their heart because you follow Jesus. Or exclude you. Right? You're shunned. They refuse to do business with you. They, they uh, don't respect you. You're, you're passed over for promotions. Or reviled and spurned. They spurn your name. They insult you, right? They gossip about you. They verbally uh, uh, attack you. I remember years ago, I received a phone call from a very angry woman. She did not have a lot of nice things to say. And she was angry because a member of my church was sharing uh, the gospel, was talking about Jesus with her husband. And he was doing it all the time. And she just had enough of this. And so she evidently got in her mind that she would call this man's pastor so I could get him to stop talking to her husband about Jesus. So I shared the gospel with her, and uh, that, that did not go well. Uh, there was all sorts of uh, wonderful uh, adjectives described about me before she hung up on the phone, right? And we're going to be, it's going to happen, right? So we'll be spurned, won't we? We'll be hated, we'll be excluded, we'll be insulted, we'll be rejected. And, and you could share these stories, couldn't you? You could talk about being mocked at school or ignored by the neighbors or the angry phone calls or the bad job review. But I wonder if things are going to get... More difficult. I, I tend to think they are. I think they will get significantly more challenging. And, and if you know me well, uh, these are not the type of things I generally like to talk about. That is kind of cultural events. I, I, I generally don't like to get into these cultural debates. In fact, often I'm embarrassed by Christians when they do. I, I think Christians tend to sensationalize events that are going on. I think they demonize those who oppose us, and I think they do probably to support their own ministry. And I think quite often, to be honest, Christians sound a lot more like Rush Limbaugh than they do Jesus Christ. And that embarrasses me. I want to sound like Jesus. And yet, I think what's happening is, is too profound to ignore. It seems to me, as I said, there's a new moral order rising in America, and it will oppose us. It seems to me that the coming days will require wisdom and courage that will require conviction and grace. I'm not the only one that believes this. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, who, by the way, if you're ever interested in trying to figure out what's going on in the culture, it, that's about the best resource you could look at. His blog, Al Mohler, very level-headed, um, very academic. 
He has said, we are now facing a battle that will determine the destinies of priceless freedoms. And so I want to discuss this battle with you, but I don't want to really talk to you about how to fight it. Um, it, It's not to say we shouldn't fight to stop the spread of sin. We certainly should. And if I was preaching another text, I would do that. If I was preaching we should be salt of the earth and light of the world, I would talk to you about how we can do that. But the text before us is not how to fight this. It's how to respond to it, which I think is rarely considered. I think I've received the emails, right? And I'm sure you have the email forwards. And it's rarely how do we respond to it. It's, it's mostly how do we fight against it. But Jesus has something very interesting for us here as, as we consider what's going on with this, this new sexual ethic that's taking place in our land. And I, I, I assume I don't need to persuade you that there is this revolution taking place. I mean, it was seen last month in the universal claim of the transformation of Bruce Jenner to Caitlyn Jenner. As, uh, Jenner was awarded all sorts of awards for courage. It was seen uh, even locally last month when I think it was Fairfax public school system adopted a gender identity policy allowing students to choose the bathrooms and the locker rooms of their chosen gender. It was seen last month as well when Secretary of Defense, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates urged the Boy Scouts of America to open itself to homosexual leaders. It was seen last month when Ireland became the first country to legalize same-sex marriage by public referendum. And it was overwhelming, by the way. It was almost two to one. Joining, of course, Belgium, Canada, South Africa, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, Portugal, Argentina, Denmark, Uruguay, New Zealand, France, Brazil, England, Wales, Scotland, Luxembourg, and Finland as the nations that now have legalized same-sex marriage. Well, you add, by the way, to that Mexico, because the Supreme Court just this week um, legalized same-sex marriage. You see it in March, didn't you? In the almost universal denouncement and eventual repeal of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Indiana, a law that simply would allow people to practice their religious convictions wherever they go. And you saw that as as our culture just um, lambasted that act. And most importantly, you'll see it this week, or if not this week, within 10 days, as the Supreme Court will rule in June whether the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution guarantees the constitutional right for same-sex marriage. The question for us, then, is how do we respond to this? I mean, how do we as followers of Christ respond to this? And there's going to be pressure on us. There is a cultural tidal wave. And there's going to be pressure to to go along with the rest of society. And, And as I mentioned last week, many prominent evangelical Christians are. In fact, uh, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, is largely leading this way and going along. They long ago were performing same-sex unions, same-sex marriages. But now the Anglican Church is developing a religious ceremony similar to baptism that they would give to the members of their church who undergo a gender transition. And they call it a a type of re-baptism. So they will, they will have in their religious services, in the honor of Christ, at least in name, a ceremony, a rebaptism of someone who changes from one gender into a, another gender. And when I read that, uh, especially knowing that this is people who claim to follow Jesus, my initial reaction was anger. It makes me angry. Um, I don't know if it makes you angry. But then I, you're talking to God about this and... and I want us to understand that when the Anglican church does things like this, or when people do things like this, they do it because they love transgender people. But they're not doing it because they hate them. They're doing it because they love them. And they are trying to love them. And, and I think these people need love. 
Transgender people are no doubt are hurting and confused and rejected. They are 20 times more likely to commit suicide. They are the same type of people I think Jesus Christ would have been ministering to if he's walking this earth today. But here's the problem. Is that embracing sin and celebrating sin and religiously blessing sin in the name of Jesus Christ is not loving. It's the opposite. In fact, the Bible is very clear that homosexuality is a sin. It's not the only sin. It's not the biggest sin. But it certainly is a sin, a sin as in other sins that will keep one out of heaven. The Bible could not be more clear on this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do not be deceived. Is that not an important word for us? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, God opposes homosexuality and same-sex marriage and transgender uh, transitions, not because he hates homosexuals, but because he loves them. It is out of his love for them that he opposes this sin. And I think this is important for us to affirm. In fact, I, I imagine uh, with a, a group this size, that there, there are some here that perhaps struggle with same-sex attraction. And, and if that is going on in your heart, I want you to understand that this is a community of people who are all dealing with various struggles. And we are a community of people who rejoice in grace and delight to give grace. And there are many people, myself included, if, if this is a struggle you're going with, would love to walk alongside you, not with judgment and condemnation in my heart, but mercy and love, as I think Christ would. And so please don't bear that burden alone. You do not have to. God loves you, and His people love you. And God's opposition to homosexuality is out of His love. God, is, God doesn't oppose homosexuality because He's a killjoy. He opposes homosexuality because He opposes to that which kills joy. And joy and life and purpose are found now and forevermore, ultimately in being fit before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? And joy and life and purpose are never found in turning to the one who created all of this and said, I have intentions for my creation. I have made you a certain way to act a certain way and looking to the creator and saying, no, I will not. I will go my own way. You will not find joy there. You will not find life there. You will not find purpose there. You will simply find confusion and eventually ruin. And therefore, I, I believe that, that heterosexual sin or homosexual sin will rob one of joy, will rob one of salvation. And, and, and therefore, we don't love them by celebrating that which will keep them out of heaven. We love them by trying to get them into heaven. We love them by trying to get them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is why God sent His Son, Jesus, to die for sinners. For God so loved the world. He loved them. I'm going to send my Son to die for you that they might be forgiven and turn from their sin. And so please, let us respond like Jesus. We do not represent Christ well with name-calling and crude jokes and venomous bumper stickers. We represent Christ well when we hope and we pray and we vote and volunteer and donate, yes, for the sanctity of marriage, but we do so not simply to preserve America or to save our culture, but we do so to save homosexuals. We love them and therefore will stand for, uh, for the sanctity of marriage. 
when we follow Christ when we love homosexuals more than they love themselves. In fact, this is not what Jesus tells us to do in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. This is what we're called to do. We love them by insisting that what everyone most deeply needs is to embrace God through a faith in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you may be wondering, well, what does this have to do with the text? What does this, in other words, what does this have to do with persecution? Well, we have been uh, guaranteed now for years that if our country allows for same-sex couples to marry, that will not impact us in the slightest, right? And, and the argument has been, listen, we just simply want the same rights that you all have. We just want the right to marry the person whom we love, the person of our choosing. And why, why will you withhold that right from us? We're not asking you to give up anything, church. Just give us the right that you enjoy. This has been the argument. This is what we have heard. For instance, on March 31st, the New York Times editorial board wrote, The freedom to exercise one's religion is not under assault in Indiana or anywhere else in the country. Religious people, including Christians, may worship however they wish. But please, please listen carefully to that. We, it does not, they do not say we may follow Christ however we wish. It does not seem to say we may exercise our religion however we wish. They say you may worship however you wish. In America, we once enjoyed freedom of religion. That we can go wherever we want to in freedom to follow Jesus. That freedom has been, for the past 10 years, increasingly redefined as a freedom to worship. You may come into a building and act however you wish. But you may not follow your God outside these walls. Columnist Frank Bruni in January in the New York Times affirmed, quote, The right of people to believe what they do, say what they wish in their pews, homes, and hearts. In other words, you keep your religion within your walls. But the problem is I like to follow Jesus outside these walls. I like to follow him in my neighborhood and at the ball fields. I like to follow him wherever I happen to be going. And yet our culture is increasingly saying you have a right to your private religious opinions, but you do not have a right to follow them when you come to work or when you go to school or when you're in your neighborhood. And this is disturbing, of course, but I don't think it's going to stop there. I don't think they're just simply interested in boxing us in. I think they are interested in having us change our religious convictions. On Easter Sunday, the New York Times once again demanded that Christians get over believing that homosexuality is a sin or suffer the consequences. Uh, that's, that's my paraphrase, by the way. They didn't say that. What they did say is, so our debate about religious liberty should include a conversation about freeing religions and religious people from prejudices they, that they need it cling to and can jettison, rightly bowing to the enlightenment of modernity. The words of Jesus need to bow to our modern age, according to the New York Times. And there are consequences if they don't. If you continue to consider homosexuality a sin, you continue to refuse to celebrate a transgender transition or to participate in a same-sex marriage, you simply won't be considered wrong. You'll be considered a bigot. You'll be considered a hater. One prominent newspaper uh, wrote about the Indiana event. In Indiana, this is a headline, front page. In Indiana, using religion as a cover for bigotry. 
Another headline covering the Supreme Court said on uh, the, the Supreme Court's decision on same-sex marriage, discrimination is on trial. One pastor who's embraced homosexuality recently preached that gay marriage will eventually triumph because love is stronger than hate. So you either support this cultural trend, you understand, or you're a bigot, or you're a hater. That's how our culture will treat us. Or to use the biblical language, you'll be hated and excluded. You'll be spurned and reviled. Loving God and and lovingly supporting the sanctity of marriage and lovingly support homosexuals in a biblical way will increasingly cost us. And once again, I don't think it, I think it's going to keep moving because on April 28th in 2015, just less than two months ago, the United States Solicitor General stood before the Supreme Court of the United States. This is the second highest uh, legal official in America. And he argued that religious liberties must soon give away to this new morality. Of course, this, by the way, is already the case for businesses. Right? You, you cannot have a business in America anymore and still stand in opposition to these, this trend. Right? You think if Boeing said, well, we're not going to uh, recognize same-sex marriages, that the government continue to give them contracts. I mean, this is the exact reason why Fairfax Public School said we need to go to this gender identity policy because the federal government's going to re- re- remove our federal funding. And so it's already happening, by the way, in businesses. But what was interesting is the Solicitor General wasn't talking about non-religious businesses. He was talking about religious businesses. And he's saying that religious institutions must give way to the new morality. He was specifically arguing about uh, religious schools, Christian schools. And he said that if, if they do not accept homosexual students, if they do not, for instance, provide housing for those who are in a same-sex marriage, they will lose their nonprofit status. At least that's what he would like to see happen. And by the way, if a religious institution like Patrick Henry's College down the road, well, why not a church? I and mean, where's it going to stop? And you may think, well, what's the big deal about losing your tax-exempt status? Well, of course, one, you lose the right to give charitable contributions to the church to get a tax write-off. But even more than that, I don't know if you realize, we don't pay property tax on this, on this property. And, and there are how many thousands of churches, small churches in America that have been worshiping the same building for 150 years, small communities of faith. And when the government comes and lay, throws on them a property tax bill, they have absolutely no way to pay that. And the government will be seizing buildings left and right. This is what the Solicitor General of the United States argued. Al Mohler writes, the loss of tax-exempt status would put countless churches and religious institutions out of business simply because the burden of property taxes and the loss of charitable support would cripple their ability to sustain their mission. So how do we respond? If this is what's going to happen, well, pray it doesn't, but if this is where we're going, how do we as Christians respond? Well, there's a couple ways we can look at that, can't, can't we? Um, we could think about how we respond to those outside, uh, those in the world, those who are pushing this cultural trend. And I think verse 27 is about as good as any verse to tell us how we should respond. We love those who hate us and that we do good to, the, uh, do good to those who hate us and we bless those who curse us and we pray for those who abuse us. So that's, that's one way to respond. How do we respond? to the world, but how do we respond internally? What goes on in our heart when this happens? Well, first of all, I think Jesus would tell us that we should consider ourselves blessed. Look at verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. Blessed are you when people exclude you. Blessed are you when people revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. If if you love homosexuals, As God instructs us to, you love God, you love marriage, and you stand gently for the truth, you will be hated and spurned and reviled. And when that happens, Jesus says, you are blessed. You're blessed. Now, I've read a great deal on this topic. 
and I've received the email forwards, and I have yet to see anyone who's following Christ saying, hey, you understand, if this happens to us, we will be blessed. It doesn't sound right, right? It's blessed to be hated? And what does he mean? And to be honest, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I think this would be a great conversation. You know, gather the family around today, Father's Day, and have a conversation about how to follow Jesus well. And maybe you could ask, what is it, how is it a blessing to be hated? What does Jesus mean by that? Or even better, I think probably a better question is, what does it say about us that we don't consider it a blessing to be hated? What's going on inside of us? But let me take a guess and try to answer that. Why is it blessed to be hated? You know, in the past 300 years, if you lived in this land, you would go and you ask uh, the man on the street, common man, and say, hey, I have a question for you. Is it a good thing to be a Christian or is it a bad thing to be a Christian? You would all, almost universally get the same answer. Oh, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be a Christian. Not a bad thing. But in the last 20 years, last 10 years, you go ask the average man on the street, hey, is it a good thing to be a Christian or is it a bad thing to be a Christian? Oh, it depends who you ask, doesn't it? It's not going to be the same answer like it used to be. The reality is that it used to be the case to be a Christian was good for you. And usually beneficial in all sorts of ways. It's beneficial for you financially and socially and relationally and professionally, right? And be a Christian was good. And, and is that good? Certainly it's good. But it also presents profound temptations. And the temptation is, is the more we are accepted in this world, the more prosperous we become precisely because we are Christians, the more tempted we are to feel at home in this world. The more tempted we are to forget that we're aliens here and sojourners here and exiles here. And we begin to develop a Christianity that goes hand in hand with comfort and security and prosperity. And we develop a, a Christianity where we think Christians should be the respected citizens in this world. And I wonder, to be honest, if one of the reasons why the American church is so weak today is that we are, are, are so at home here in this world. And we're so in love with prosperity and possessions and popularity, and promotions. But today, it's not necessarily good to be a Christian. It's in fact going to be increasingly harmful. And some of you have already experienced this at your work. Some of you have experienced it in your annual review. Some of you will experience it personally and financially. That, that, that it, it's not, it, not necessarily good to be a Christian. It's harmful. And I wonder if the blessing there is that God is, is freeing us. From the love of this world. And he's reminding us that this is not our home. That he has not died on the cross so that we can have big houses and multiple cars and and be successful in this world. But he has a world planned for us. A a beautiful, profound world. And so therefore we can, I think, and should consider ourselves blessed. In fact, Jesus goes on in note verse 23. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their prophets, for their fathers did to the prophets. So not only consider yourself blessed, but he says even more, rejoice and leap for joy. By the way, this is the only command in the Beatitudes. So all the rest of the Beatitudes are just statement of a fact. You know, blessed are the poor, yours is the kingdom of God. There's nothing to do there, it's just a statement. But he gets to this Beatitude in particular and there's something for us to do. And it is shocking. He says, rejoice when people hate you and slander you and spurn you. And, and this is not what we hear much today. 
I don't think Jesus is saying it's pleasant. I don't think he's saying it's fun. It's not fun to be hated. It's not fun to be fired. It's not fun to be slandered. But the reality is God, God knows what's happening in our life. You understand that? And God is going to actually reward us for following him into hard and difficult places. There is a recompense for our faithfulness. And this is what Jesus says here. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Why? Your reward is great in heaven. So there is a reward in heaven that will more than make up for the suffering in which you and I endure. And therefore we should rejoice and that therefore we should leap for joy. Jesus says your reward is great. And by the way, when we read the Bible, we see this over and over again that followers of Christ are being suffering and, and persecuted and they're responding with joy in their heart. They're responding with, 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 uh, with joyful leaping. One beautiful passage is Hebrews 10 verse 32. I think we, this might be on the screen. He says, here, after you were enlightened, that is, after you came to faith in Jesus, you endured a hard struggle with many, with sufferings. Well, you were persecuted. What, what kind of persecution? Verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you, note this word, joyfully. Right? See that? And you, you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. And so where, where can we find the ability to leap for joy? Where can, where can we find the ability to joyfully accept the plunder of our property? It is only if you know you have a better possession coming, an abiding possession coming, or in Jesus' words, a great reward coming. See, their love affair with possessions and popularity had ended. Their treasure was Christ. Their treasure was what awaits them. They believed that their home was not here upon this earth, but they are exiles headed to heaven. And they really, really believed this. They really believed that, that this world was so inferior to the world to come that is, that is a, a, a wonderful. And this world is so short to the world to come that is eternal. And they believed so much. That when their furniture was stolen and their books were burned, they rejoiced, knowing God will repay beyond comparison. Their heart was in heaven, just as the apostle tells us to place it. The Bible instructs us that suffering for Christ will increase our rewards in heaven. It doesn't make any sense if, if it doesn't. Right? If we all are rewarded the same in heaven, why would you suffer, rejoice if you suffer? If, you, if you're rewarded the same way that the individual who doesn't suffer. And so the re rewards will be based upon our obedience to God, based upon the suffering in which we face. And, and we see this in Luke 18. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Who will not receive many more time, many more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is prepared. By the way, Paul's affliction was, you and I would not consider light and momentary. It was intense, right? It was much more intense than anything that we'll experience, I trust, in this land. For this light momentary affliction, what? Paul is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you will be rewarded 
for standing firm with Jesus. And therefore, you can leap for joy. You can rejoice if you believe Him. It's only to the degree that you trust Jesus that you will receive in heaven this great reward that you will be able to joyfully accept this persecution. It all comes down to your faith. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, please understand that we as Christians don't believe we will one day stand before God and we will say to God, you know, can we come into heaven because we've lived good lives? We certainly will not come to God and say, can we go into heaven because we're heterosexuals? Will you accept us on that basis? We won't come to Him and say, we've done all these good things. Will you let us in? Now, we understand that we are just as sinful as everyone else. That's why Jesus came to this world. That's why God sent His Son. He died upon the cross. And the reason He died upon the cross is He is taking my punishment upon Himself. And the punishment of everyone who would trust in Him. And so one day I'll stand before God and I'll say, God, will you accept me into your heaven? Not because I am a good man. In fact, I am the exact opposite and I deserve to be cast into hell. But will you accept me into heaven because I trust in Jesus? I've given my life to Him. I follow Him. And He has taken all my punishment upon Him. I appeal to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, that belief, faith, in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be saved right now. And made fit before God through the work of Jesus Christ. It's by faith. But Christians, it is not just faith that saves us. It is faith that empowers us to live the life in which we're called to live. Right? To the degree we trust in Jesus is the degree in which we will actually cons- be able to consider ourselves blessed or rejoiced in the midst of persecution. We have to therefore put our hearts in heaven, as Paul wrote us. We have to put our hope in heaven, our desires in heaven. That is the only way in which we can rejoice when our earthly treasures are taken from us. And by the way, if we actually succeed in doing what Jesus calls for us to do, if we rejoice when this happens, what will the world think about us when they call us names and they fire us from our jobs and so forth and so forth and they take our church buildings and we still rejoice in the midst of us? What will the world think of us? Well, they'll probably think that we are weird, right? But you know what they'll also think? Those people really value their God. In fact, they value their God more than the things that we value. They're not living for the things that we're living for. And is that not how the church has always grown? When the church communicates to a watching world that our treasure is Jesus Christ. And you take everything else from us, but you can't take Jesus. And therefore, we can have joy. God help us. God help us stand for truth. God help us mourn over sin. God help us love this world, the people of this world deeply. God help us to represent Jesus well. And God help us, if suffering comes upon us, to find the strength, to have the faith, to rejoice in the midst of it. As we compare this short life to an eternal one, that we would believe when we've been there for 10,000 years, bright shining us the stars. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It's 
is hard. I think sometimes we make following Jesus sound like it's easy and profitable. And when Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to look at this, your word, and apply these truths to our heart. This is your word. No man would come up with this. And there's part, part of me, I trust there's part of my brothers and sisters that, that want to reject it. Want to say, no, that can't be right. And yet I believe when we follow it, when we truly seek after you, we will find that there is great delight, great blessedness in following Jesus. Father, we pray for our nation. And the book of Romans tells us that the more we turn our back from you, the more you will give us over into our sin. You will release your restraining hand upon us. And even in Romans 1, that sin is homosexuality. And I wonder if we are just simply experiencing the consequences of our own rebellion. And so we long for healing, Father. We long for repentance. We long for truth and love and the kingdom to grow. But it may mean that you have to take your people through a wandering. Take us into the wilderness for a while. That we may repent of our sin. That we may more faithfully follow you. Father, we pray for our Supreme Court. That we'll make a ruling this week that will impact this nation in profound and incredible ways. We pray, Father that you would guide them in truth. We know many of them claim to follow your son Jesus. Will you help them to open their Bibles and read his words? And Father, whatever they decide, we recognize that there there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. Marriage is what you have created, one man and one woman united in covenant together. Help us to realize, Father, this week that Jesus Christ sits upon his throne at your right hand. Help us to remember, Father, even as we sang today, through the storm, that you are Lord of all. And mostly, Father, I pray that you would help us to follow Christ well. I hope that we would leave this place challenged to be like Jesus to a watching world, that we would stand firm in our convictions and that we would love the lost and that we would represent Jesus well. Help us, help Hamilton Baptist Church, Father, to shine as the darkness grows, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we join in singing how firm.